it's really it's really nice to have you here with us. Uh, there are a lot of issues that I would like to talk uh, because obviously your your work is very very broad. But uh, there is a question uh, that I think it's interesting uh, for for Matin's work, but as well uh, for you. Um, for many philosophers or people interested in, in in philosophy that maybe are listeners of of our podcast, and uh, it's in relation to something that you mentioned in, in your book, Authors of the Impossible. And in this work, you describe the paranormal as semiotic dialogical events that they collapse the subject-object structure. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to know a little bit uh, in detail how you would uh, characterize this collapse, uh, because I think it touches many, many different aspects of uh, your work, but as well our work. Yeah, so that's... I mean, there are many ways to think of that collapse. Um, so if if an event doesn't have both mental and material aspects to it, I, I don't consider it paranormal. Um, I mean, I think when that word was coined in 1903 by Joseph Maxwell in France, he meant something very physical by it. He, he meant physical movements around a seance or around a medium that clearly related to the intentions and will of the sitters and the, and the medium working together. Um, he didn't mean something simply subjective, only in the heads of, of someone. He meant something happening in the physical environment. So if something is not doesn't have those two components, the mental and the material, I, I would not ever use that word to, to describe the event. Um, that explains for me a lot, including why the conventional sciences have such a hard time with paranormal events. Um, I mean, science essentially works by splitting the subject and the object, right? By, and removing as much subjectivity as, as you can and looking at material events in the environment strictly as objective events. So the scientific method splits the subject and object in a very radical way and tries to deny or, or erase or not look at the subjective element, whereas that's impossible to do actually in paranormal experiences because the subjective element is so important and so informing of the event. It doesn't mean that the mental state causes this, the physical state. That's, I think, where I think there's probably a little naivete. Um, I use a dual aspect monistic model where the subject and the object split off of a, of a shared ground, but they then operate in two entirely different domains. There's the mental domain and there's the material domain, and they're, they're working differently and one isn't causing the other but they're correlated to this deeper psychophysically neutral ground as it were so that's how i think about it i mean i do think about this philosophically 
Um, and I think these events are obvious. Uh, it doesn't do us any good to deny them. Um, and I think it does us a lot of good to think with them. But I think when we think with them, we move in ways that are, you know, go very much against our, our, um, our instincts or our intuitions. And that, that's why I like them. I, I, love, I love paranormal events, not because I understand them, but precisely because I don't understand them. And I think they're, they're provoking new forms of thought and new forms of imagination. Uh, could you uh, describe a bit better, um, yeah, how do you understand the subject and object relationship? Just to make sure. Well, you know, very simply, you know, when you and I are sitting here talking to one another, we're experiencing ourselves as a subject, per presumably inside a body and a brain, looking out to an external world and seeing a set of objects that are op operating mechanically or material in three-dimensional space and in a fourth dimension of time. So there's a subject perceiving an objective world. In a paranormal event, that physical world is speaking to or corresponding with whatever the mental state or the intentionality of the subject is, whether that intentionality is, is conscious or unconscious. That, that, I mean, I think that's a big distinction. I'm not arguing for a conscious uh, control of, of a material event. I, th I think these things are resonating or corresponding because they've split off of this, this one world down here. Um, you know, as I sometimes say, the world is one, but the human is two. And, and what I mean by that is reality is one thing. It's all one. But in a human being, it gets split into two things. It gets split into a subjective component and a material component. But that split is illusory. It, it's not really real. It's real to us because that's our nature as human organisms. We, we split reality into two domains but it's not really so split in itself it's it's perfectly it's perfectly not split so i mean that's that's a very abstract a very philosophical way of thinking about it i mean we can talk about individual events that are generally never that abstract right they're very specific they often flow through the imagination of the person or the community They often take on very robust gothic or, or robustly symbolic forms. So the imagination is translating this coinciding, you know, or this, res this resonance between the material and the mental. And what I'm always trying to do as a comparativist is essentially not take the beliefs literally, but take them as trying to communicate something to the person or to the community. And that, that third space is, is the key here. I'm not, I'm not debunking the event because it's actually happening, but neither am I believing the content of the event. You know, I don't, I don't believe in, in angels or demons or, or aliens or fairies. I think those are, those are mythical persons or mythical beings that the human imagination calls up to understand what's happening, but that's actually not what's happening. Those are symbolic frames, as it were, to, to communicate something to us. In relation to this uh, comment, uh, there is another um, line 
by you that I find uh, very thought-provoking as well for, for the field of speculative philosophy and is when you said uh, we are hunting ourselves in the present from the past yeah. and the future via the ghost and the alien yeah and I think uh, this is very interesting right because you are talking about uh, the symbolic um, uh, this meaning that it's feeding back our subjectivity in time and this potential collapse of this subject-object relationship with uh, encounters that in the past we have been uh, addressing them in, in terms of ghosts, spirits, etc. But when we try to project the future, we talk about alien technologies, etc. Uh, I think it's a very clever uh, asymmetry between the past and the future. I would love if you could expand on that, because obviously we are talking about something else, no? an extraterrestrial intelligence rather than the spirit of a former, former member of the family or whatever. Yeah, so I, you know, I don't believe in extraterrestrials either, Miguel. I, again, that's another mythical framework that the the religious imagination is using at the moment to 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 translate these things. But uh, the alien is just—it's like an angel or a demon of the past. It's 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 simply another, again, mythical um, figure. Um, you know, one of the things that, one of the, the most striking set of phenomena for me is precognitive experiences. It's people who say have a dream of something that will happen the next day or the next week or even three years out. And it'll be in very precise detail. And these are clearly not coincidences. These are clearly not accidents. These are precognitions of what is actually going to play out in space and time, 24 hours in the future or three years in the future. And that suggests all kinds of things philosophically. Uh, it suggests that the future has, is already happening. And it also suggests that information can flow back from the future into the past or, or our own present. Um, and I just take that as a given um, because I think the data on precognition is overwhelming. I, I don't know how any reasonable person can read enough of it and come away thinking that it doesn't happen. Um, people who deny precognition are the same people who haven't actually looked at the literature or the data. Um, so to me, it's just obvious that that happens. And so then the next step is, well, how does it happen? And what does that mean about the human person? What does that mean about time? What does that mean about cognition and dream and the ability of the person to essentially be influenced by both the past and the future? Um, I essentially work with a kind of block model of space-time. I think it's all laid out. I think it's all there. Like Parmenides or something like that. Yeah, and we're kind of moving through it, you know. Um, so it's it, this is called the block universe cosmology. It's actually a very prominent model in contemporary cosmology. And 
But it again, it implies that the future is as set as the past is. And as I often try to explain to people, for some reason, when we look to the past, all of our decisions have already been made and they're all determined. And that doesn't bother us. But when we look to the future, <laughs> for some reason, we're now bothered that all those decisions are laid out and, and have already happened and are determined. So we make this to me, completely arbitrary distinction between the past and the future, where to me, it's all just one thing. It's all one block, and those decisions are as as determined and as laid out in the future as they are in the past. It doesn't mean we don't have free will. It means that free will is really a function of the present and of the, the particular moment. And when we look back on our choices, of course, they're, they're there. They're all made, they're all determined. And I don't see any reason why we, when we look ahead, the same isn't true. And it seems to me precognition implies that it is true, that the past has essentially already happened, and that's why people can have basically perfect precognitions of things that won't play out until the future. Well, there are these uh, readings of precognition or the ability to predict as some sort of weird extension of uh, our capacity to see in complexity how things are going to unfold from examples like Gravity Rainbow or pop culture examples, no? that something could lead us to know, to feel that uh, X event is already happening in the present, even though we say it's going to occur in two days time whatsoever. I just think that those are essentially fake. Uh, they're fake explanations. They're, they're ways to, to make us feel better um, about having some kind of, that the future is somehow undetermined. Um, I think we're terrified of a kind of deterministic universe. Yeah. And so we come up with reasons like you just articulated, which really are per completely hypothetical and they don't explain it all why people can have a precognition of something three years out. It, it just doesn't work. It just, it simply doesn't work. Um, so for me, I'm going to privilege the experience over the hypothesis. Um, and I'm going to try to then speculate out of that experience. And it doesn't mean I'm right, Miguel. It doesn't I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting if you take these experiences as your primary data points, then you only have so many directions you can speculate. Uh, and that's going to take you in a place that is not this kind of rationalistic, you know, yeah. psychologism that you just articulated. I'm very interested in your notion of the flip, uh, and especially its political ramifications or possibilities yeah. because they, it seems to really undermine the subject-object relationship that we have talked uh, before. So if you could just describe it and yeah, also it's yeah. ramifications. Yeah, it's a it's a little it's a little different direction, but I certainly can. By by the flip, I simply mean this this ex experience that modern people will often have. Uh, they, they've been trained to think in a materialistic or mechanistic worldview and that consciousness is somehow 
an accidental byproduct of, of brain that, you know, consciousness is a kind of epiphenomenon of neuronal activity in the brain. The neurons are organized in such a way, they're going to fire in such a way, and they're going to create this illusion of, of consciousness or awareness. What the flip is, is when somebody realizes that actually consciousness or awareness is fundamental. It's not an epiphenomenon. It's actually what's driving the whole shebang. Uh, and that it's shared. We all share the same basic form of cosmic awareness or consciousness. The political ramifications of that, I think, can go in a number of directions. The subject-object split, I think, most easily goes in a kind of ecological direction, because what it what it means is that the natural world is is not separate from us. We are not we are not transcendent to or or separated from the natural world. We are an expression of that natural world. And the natural world itself is conscious, is sentient. Um, once you move in that direction, then a kind of ecological worldview just becomes obvious, you know, because now you're privileging the whole over the parts. You're not privileging a part over the whole. So I think this subject-object split is, you know, is really what's gotten us into so much trouble, frankly, in the modern world. I think we can glorify it for sure and talk about what it's gotten us, but it's also destroying a lot of things. And so I think this does have profound political and ethical and moral ramifications. I do not want to be heard, though, that having a flip makes one a better person or a better society, because first of all, societies don't flip. Individuals flip. And secondly, we can name all kinds of flipped worldviews that engage in social or moral behaviors that I think many of us would find really quite repulsive and really, really um, problematic. Um, so I think we need reason, we need, we need critique, we need analysis, but we also need these sorts of flipped experiences so we don't get caught in this notion that the I or the subject is somehow separate from the rest of the world. In continuation with, with these comments regarding consciousness and sentient uh, beings, I don't know if you have been following the news regarding Lambda. This yeah, so just vaguely. I mean, it's look, how can you not hear about yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> I am really interested in knowing what do you think. Well, for those who have not read this, this uh, Google engineer Blake Lemoine. Uh, that was recently suspended after claiming that Lambda, this AI one chat box system, was not only conscious but a person, he said. And it's very interesting for me because his, um, uh, his view is theologically informed. He describes himself as a mystical Christian. Uh, he's actually an um, ordained priest in a small religious organization called the Cult of Our Lady Magdalene. And it's interesting, no? So this engineer, uh, his task 
uh, was to train the AI to have these conversations. And we know that central to Christian hermeneutics is this notion that each piece of scripture has two authors, uh, the human writer, let's say Moses or Paul, and simultaneously uh, through this process of divine inspiration, God or the Holy Spirit is, is writing as well. No, so uh, I found interesting, no, that uh, for this engineer, the the way in which he was able to square his technical understanding of the computational process by which lambda apparently generates text that proves that he or uh, it's being sentient uh, and there is a person behind it. Uh, it's incredible because uh, as a previous guest of the podcast, Matt Dryhurst, comment on Twitter the other day, uh, it's quite likely that we are going to see now new religions or movements birthed by AI or a group of people that decide to believe on, on that because I guess new religions have started on far less compelling claims and supporting materials than this very elaborated and long conversation. I don't know how do you see that or if you have any comments. So, I mean, I, I have lots of opinions, but they're not they're not especially informed, Miguel. I, I have followed the Lambda story, you know, I think the way a lot of people followed it, which is to say superficially. Um, I haven't dug into the story or dug into what actually happened. My, um, my initial view of it is one of profound skepticism. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I actually don't believe in AI. I mean, I think AI is so. I mean, I think there is something called AI, but I don't think it 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 will become conscious. Uh, and here's why: it's it's not it's a philosophical reason. It's not a it's not an empirical reason. And I'm happy to be persuaded otherwise. But AI is based on a materialist model um, that. The brain, again, the consciousness is produced by the brain. You know, you get enough biological or neurological organization and it eventually creates this, this ghost or this, this fuzzy awareness of consciousness. So it's, it is, it's itself reductive. Um, and the computer dream of creating a conscious computer is just, just like that. It argues that you have a, a set of material conditions that are sophisticated enough and integrated enough that then it suddenly becomes conscious, right? Um, so the AI, it's not AI actually. Artificial intelligence, of course, is very real. It's a very, it's a very helpful thing. But a conscious computer is essentially a belief. Hmm. And it's a metaphysical belief that's extremely reductive. Um, and because I'm arguing for the flip that we, we talked about earlier, I think having a conscious computer is the exact opposite of the flip. It's basically an attempt to confirm this reductive understanding of what consciousness is. That if you just create something material, 
that's integrated and sophisticated enough, it's eventually going to become conscious. So I am um, just extremely skeptical. And it doesn't mean I'm right again. It just means that as I approach that particular story, my instincts are such that uh, I don't believe it. I, I believe that Lambda can imitate a conscious being. No, no question about that. Um, but that doesn't mean it's conscious. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Sorry, Matthew. Yeah, may, may I ask just, yeah, what do you mean by conscious or consciousness? Because here, here's the key, yeah, in order to understand the distinction. So, yeah, so what I mean by consciousness is awareness that's aware of itself. I mean, I mean, I don't mean you can replicate intelligence. I don't mean that you can find out whose face belongs to which person in a crowd. That's all artificial intelligence. That takes no consciousness. Um, this laptop I'm on is not conscious. It's a machine that is using a, a set of technologies to communicate with you where, wherever you are. But I don't imagine for one second that my MacBook Pro is conscious. So I think consciousness is primary and exists before or under the material world. And the material world then emerges from this conscious awareness or this sentience. What I think this conscious computer thing doing is it's the reverse of that. It argues that the material world is primary. And if you get enough matter that's sophisticated and integrated enough, it will eventually become conscious. I don't believe that. Um, but again, that's a belief. That's why I said I don't believe that. It's a belief. It's it's not it's not a particularly informed belief in this case because I haven't read these pieces, um, but I have thought about it a lot. Um, you know, this is not an, a new idea. This is a very old idea. Silicon Valley's been saying this for decades. Um, so I also here's here's another reason. I'm so skeptical. It has to do with history. You know, if you look at paranormal phenomena, they follow technological development. You know, it, you know, 300 years ago when somebody died, candles would go out. You know, or or a, a mechanical clock would stop. You know, then 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 it was the telegraph and suddenly spiritual communication was a kind of spiritual telegraph and hence you get a word like telepathy you know then it was the radio then it was the television now it's the computer okay well none of those previous technologies worked they were all analogical metaphors that sort of worked and sort of didn't. And I think the computer metaphor of the, of the brain and the, the mind relationship is similar. It's, it's a, frankly, it's a very primitive metaphor. And um, I don't think it's going to work for the same reasons that all these other previous technological metaphors were. I don't know why suddenly we have the right technology. No, absolutely. And I agree with you in this skepticism regarding consciousness and AI, but as a piece of technology or as a uh, paradigm shift in the way in which we produce uh, the material conditions for a set of beliefs is quite intriguing because yeah. we can say 
uh, okay, look what happened with um, Luther and the printing press, okay? Yeah, yeah. So are we experiencing now the awakening or, or I don't know, new religions or new forms of spiritual awakening based on this sort of exchange with I think that's an entirely different question, Miguel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the answer is yes. Of course, we are. I think the digital uh, revolutions have probably had more impact on us than than we're, we're willing to admit. Um, you know, very much like the printing press in the 16th century. Um, you know, the whole UFO thing is just like that. It's it's a set of of, of aerospace technologies that allow a particular kind of religious imagination to kick in and, and to be taken literally, right? Um, so again, again, there, I don't believe the beliefs because mm. I've, I've seen the beliefs before. I've seen them too many times. You know, they're never right. They're never right. Um, they're, they're coding some other kind of experience or some other kind of insight. And as human beings, we're always literalizing what it is we're experiencing. And I, I just think that's a mistake. But so getting back to the idea, if I understood correctly, you but don't believe in many of these uh, paraphenomenal, paranormal. No, I don't believe in any of them. I don't believe in any, I don't believe the beliefs, but I believe belief. Yeah, yeah. But in regards to the future, yeah. As already determined. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, if you. So want, that's not a re that's not a religious belief. That's a philosophical position, and again, it could be wrong. It's mm -hmm. a it's a hypothetical position, but okay. it, it it's a very different kind of intellectual orientation than my dead grandmother showed up to me and I think she exists on some other plane, right? I mean, it's it's a different kind of, of philosophical position, I think. Uh, please, please explain the, yeah, the, the, these differences just to, to okay. just to, to convince, you know, for me that I'm a skeptic about the future being determined. Yeah. yeah. Try to convince okay. me, please. Yeah, no, I don't. Well, first of all, I don't need to convince you. Okay, I, okay, okay, well, okay. I but just, feel I'm not. Yeah, I, but. That's not my goal. Okay. Um, my, but to follow my, you, to be able my, to follow your argument. My goal is this. I have a set of experiences or a set of texts or a set of historical or archival deposits. I want to take them seriously and I want to develop a model in which those things can happen. So someone, someone comes to me and they have, by the way, many times and said, I had this dream here's what happened in the dream or the vision, that exact thing played out the next day or the next year or three years down the road. And I'm like, well, that can't happen in our present model. That's crazy talk. That's impossible. But maybe there's something wrong with our model then because these people keep telling me this, you know? So they're clearly experiencing something that can't happen in our present philosophical or naturalistic model. So therefore, let's change the model and let's 
let's make it so that those kinds of experiences are possible. Okay? So let, let me give you an example. This is a really simple example, but I, it works. In the 16th or 17th century, farmers in France were telling the city folk that rocks were falling out of the sky and landing in their field. And the French intellectuals were saying, you people are idiots. You, you are primitive farmers. You don't know what you're talking about. Rocks can't frickin' fall from the sky. That's, that's crazy, okay? Okay, that made total sense given their model of the universe. But the farmers were correct. And the French city intellectuals were wrong. And the reason they were wrong was because they had an inadequate cosmology. Once they understood what outer space is and that there are freaking rocks in outer space and that occasionally they enter our atmosphere and burn up and land in farmers' fields or on their houses, suddenly that which was impossible was possible. And that's what I'm trying to say about precognition is that it's no different. These are rocks falling from the sky. We don't have a model to understand them, but it's clearly happening. So please stop telling the farmers that they're idiots. Please listen to the farmers and change your view of the world so that their reports can make some sense. That's, that's what I'm doing. Okay? Or that's what I think I'm doing. I, you know, I call it making the impossible possible, which, by which I simply mean it's not the data. We have enough data. We don't need more data. We need a model to make sense of the data we already have. And what the, the skeptic or the debunker will do is they'll just take things off the table that they can't explain with their model. They'll say, oh, that doesn't happen. I don't have to explain that. I'm like, yeah, you do. That happens, buddy. Put it back on your table. And if you have to change your worldview to to embrace that, then change your freaking worldview. Don't don't tell me these things don't happen. And so so again, it's that it's that kind of process that I'm trying to articulate. I'm not a religious believer. I'm not pushing a particular religious worldview or a particular set of beliefs. I'm adopting hypothetical models that could embrace more of the historical data. Okay, that's that's it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and again, <laughs> I could be totally wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong about all kinds of things. I don't care. I, that's not the point. The point is let's keep throwing ideas out there until something really works. It's interesting how then you argue that these paranormal phenomena, uh, precognition or uh, out-of-body experiences, are actually proto-religious building blocks of future religious systems. They can so, be. They can be. They don't have to be, but they can be. And obviously, here in the in the present moment. Uh, Uh, the, the mixture with uh, very sophisticated subcultures that they evolve uh, through technology, the internet, etc. We have seen contemporary examples that are very um, 
disturbing. I am pretty sure you have followed this thing of meme magic, oh. etc. And when you emphasize uh, meaning, the topic of meaning when discussing psychophysical correlations, a meaning in the term in terms of semiotics or this relationship between science and what they designate uh, and how, how sciences neglect this and we can see this in media how media addressed me, uh, meme magic etc and when you were trying to explain now how we or skeptics remove things from the table I do wonder uh, how or how we could change uh, the way in which we approach contemporary uh, phenomena such as meme magic or these people that they actually think that they can change uh, the solution for certain political problems by appealing to this meme magic that has been harnessed in yeah. 4chan, etc. Yeah, so at least in the States, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories and they often go in these sorts of directions, but they do it in a very undisciplined uh, and unphilosophical way. They just throw everything they can and just make stuff up, essentially, and then throw it out on the Internet. The Internet here becomes the source of a lot of this. Um, Here's what I'm trying to say, though. I, so there's this section in the, the flip. It's called How Not to Make Fundamentalism Stronger. And what I essentially say is, look, if you don't want to make fundamentalism stronger, stop pushing this materialist worldview. Because this materialist worldview is meaninglessness. It's meaningless. It's nihilistic. It's It's deadly. It's... It's empty and vacuous, and no one can really live in it with any kind of meaning or purpose. And if you keep pushing it, human beings are going to keep going back or retreating into these fundamentalist and conspiracy worldviews because they, they can't live without meaning or purpose, uh, and they don't need to, frankly, because the world isn't like that. So if you want, as an intellectual or as a scientific thinker or as a... Uh, uh, a skeptical thinker, if you want to create a worldview in which fundamentalism and, and conspiracy are less persuasive and less attractive, then reintegrate meaning and purpose into into your, your worldview, because that's what really, that's, first of all, that's what the world is. The, the world is sentient. It is meaningful. It's not devoid. It's not empty or vacuous or dead. So what you're saying is wrong. Um, but also what you're saying is going to push people back into these really dangerous literalisms and conspiracy things. So I, I, want, I want to engage these things and I want people to talk more about them, um, but I don't want to retreat back to some previous religious worldview or some other pre-scientific model that we have. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, Okay. Yeah. So what do you mean by the world is meaningful? I mean, is there, I mean, meaning you require language and, you know, language. Yeah. The way that we have it is humanly constructed. It's not, yeah. it was not there before. So 
how how is it that the world can have i mean is there a kind of foundation meaningful foundation that contains the meaning but that's very different to okay saying that okay we have generated historically language come up with this yeah. and then we generate meaning yeah. so i and i'm obviously more in the second side but you seem now to argue for the first which uh, yeah yeah so there's two i would say there's two levels of meaning there's this this superficial sense in which we normally talk about it as meaning is always about something right it's language so i use a word and it refers to something else and it refers to something else and it refers and so meaning is this web of words and culture that we create to to have a sense of belonging to the world but there's this deeper sense of meaning in which the world is alive and the world is aware and it is not dead or vacuous and the the superficial meaning up here is only possible because of this deeper sense of sentience or awareness down here i'm really talking about this deeper sense here i'm not arguing for a specific language or a specific culture that has created meaning i'm arguing for this deeper sense of meaning that 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 allows that that more superficial sense so i think you're correct i mean you're absolutely correct that when we generally talk about meaning we mean it up here in terms of language but i'm using it much more um, ontologically to refer to some kind of sentience or awareness that the world already is before language and frankly before human beings well is this not some kind of panpsychism or some kind of uh, i mean you you are you you just describe as not religious but uh i mean i identified here some kind of yeah for me i cannot but think it's again one projection we are projecting from our perspective and yeah. generating this deeper sense of meaning uh that's uh, or, yeah yeah i mean again that's the rational reading of it but but after a flip that's no longer possible because you see that the projections are they're still projections but they're they're often projected from this deeper source of meaning um, so the flip I'm connects not, you for the flip is a connect is what it does it connects you to this what you call this deeper sense of meaning yeah yeah and you can call that religious if you want i mean it's a kind of cosmopsychism or or maybe it's an idealism um i mean i call it a dual aspect monism because i to me that's the closest is it religious it's not religious in the sense you belong to a community and a culture and you argue for a particular set of beliefs but it is religious in the sense that um you know reality isn't what it appears to be that that's clearly the case i clearly am making that kind of argument because it appears that reality up here is kind of chaotic and just a set of objects and then a lot of it does appear to be dead right um i'm not denying that i'm just saying that's actually not what is so and that is that is that religious i don't know is it philosophical yes it's very philosophical it's platonic right very yeah. platonic very yeah. very platonic it's platonic so it's old i mean we're talking 2500 years here yeah um, but it's incredible i mean the impact still is 
extremely relevant and you can see these different waves in in neoplatonism and these battles between the church and the influence of aristotle in, in western culture and then it's yeah have you guys had don hoffman on have you talked to don yet no 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 i mean he's with somebody so don's a neuroscientist he does the neuroscience of perception but at the end of the day he kind of arrives at a very platonic worldview and he engages all the computer stuff all the digital stuff all the neuroscience stuff and he just doesn't believe any of it uh you know his his argument is essentially that fitness beats truth. Fitness in in terms of navigating different landscapes of freedom. In terms of Darwin. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He, what he means is Yeah, let me let me let me if I can channel yes. Don Hoffman here. Um because I love his stuff because to me it's a modern neuroscientific version of Platonism. Um Don basically says we have evolved as biological organisms to have kids and to create stable societies we have not evolved to understand what reality is and so it is virtually certain that reality is not what we're perceiving it to be we're perceiving it in a way that allows us to survive and thrive and 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 have kids essentially and 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 create the next generation his his analogy is of is a virtual reality headset a game he says if the gamer focuses on the hardware or the software behind the game the gamer will lose every time hmm. If the gamer focuses on the game and forgets about all the background stuff, he or she may in fact become very good at the game and win it, you know, over and over and over again. And he says that's our situation. We are very very good at the evolutionary game, but we don't know anything, you know, about the background of reality. And so his argument is is that it's simply not what we claim it is it's just not and um and he's arguing from a very neuroscientific kind of perspective but he lands he lands in a real platonism in fact he loves he 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 quotes the matrix a lot you know um and he knows all about plato's cave and you know he's talks to people who have had this flip and So he's very aware of these earlier models but he's not offering an earlier model he's offering a neuroscientific model. Um and that's kind of what I'm trying to say too is that there is this other that the reality ain't what it looks like and and we need to struggle with that and we need to think through that. Um Okay but it's very interesting not the reason why reality is not as it appears for us yeah. if we are this uh biological entities that yeah. have been environmentally tuned in order to reproduce yeah. um and so i i mean having the pleasure of uh talking with you i really need to ask you uh, because you wrote an entire book about uh, this subject which is SLM Institute 
Yeah. And it's um, for us in Europe, maybe it's not so um, famous, but if you could uh, describe or talk a little bit about what what is this uh, and, and the strong impact that I think it had on not only American culture, but maybe the world uh, culture via different movements in the 70s, Silicon Valley and all this aftermath that yeah. the counterculture produced uh, in the way in which we experience contemporaneity or modernity. So, yeah. Yeah, so, so the Esalen Institute is in Big Sur, California, and it was founded in, well, Yeah, it wasn't quite Esalen yet, but it was started in 1962, in the fall of 1962. And it was founded by two young men, Michael Murphy and Richard Price. And what they were really trying to do is create a kind of think tank um, for East, West to me, but also science and mysticism and psychedelics and all kinds of things to sort of, that were kind of in the air, but didn't have any place to talk. And Esalen was founded as a place for them to talk. And it was very much a talking head place at the beginning. And then what happened around 64, 65 is the counterculture hit. And it erupted actually in, in San Francisco, at least in the U.S. It, it erupted in, in the Bay Area and Monterey, not far from Big Sur. And so Esalen became one of the nodes of this counterculture. And essentially what happened is a youth culture latched on to a bunch of senior intellectuals that had been saying these things for decades, by the way. And many of them were Europeans, by the way. Um, Fritz Perls, uh, Alan Watts, Aldous Huxley, a lot of Brits, actually. Um, and suddenly this kind of explosion happened, not just in the US, but of course in England and Europe and Latin America all over. And Esalen became one of the places where these ideas could talk. And it, it created something called the Human Potential Movement. Uh, and that then spawned the much later kind of New Age movement. And today we talk about the spiritual but not religious. But they're all part of this same kind of historical flow. And of course it goes back earlier, at least in the States, to things like transcendentalism, In the, in the 19th century around Boston and Aranos in Switzerland. Um, I mean, there are there, the, the, uh, the London Society for Psychical Research and, and that was organized around Cambridge in the 19th century. I mean, there's a lot of predecessors, but it's just kind of a, a node in this history of trying to think through these questions in a way that certainly engages the religious traditions, but it's not religious and doesn't, no one captures the flag as Mike likes to say. And, and maybe that's the flag that's captured is the fact that no one captures the flag. Nobody gets to speak the absolute truth, like a, a religious authority or a guru or a, a spiritual teacher. I'm really interested in the impact in, uh, in the last uh, three decades of, of the last century of the institute because i don't know uh, to which extent this is true no this is stewart brand statement that it's true that the slm helped and the cold war uh, 
Yeah, so Stuart Brand and Michael Murphy have been friends for a long time. And, and you know, Stuart and, and Michael both live in the Bay Area. So, I mean, that was all part of the same kind of uh, uh, counterculture. In terms of the Cold War, um, I wouldn't say Aslan ended the Cold War. That's certainly an exaggeration. But they were involved in Soviet-American diplomacy since the 70s originally around parapsychology, by the way. Yeah. And then they got very much into what they called citizen diplomacy, which was essentially bringing Russian artists and novelists and musicians and scientists to the U.S. and then then American scientists, literary figures to the Soviet Union. And this all came to a head in 1988 when Eslin sponsored Boris Yeltsin and his trip to the US. And that's where Yeltsin really discovered that a lot of the things he was told about capitalism and democracy and American culture were simply wrong. Um, and he went back to the Soviet Union and he was you know, standing on a tank a couple years later, you know, in front of the, front of the government building there. So Eslin certainly helped um, in that process. Um, but was just, again, one of many influences or actors. And of course, today with the, the invasion of, of Ukraine, it's, this is all incredibly poignant and, and powerful for these same Esalen diplomats and, and, and um, international actors. And how do you feel and how do they feel in relation to these uh, connections that we see today? with this new phenomenon, well, which I guess is not new, this conspirituality yeah. uh, thing and the uh, links with QAnon and far-right movements, because it's completely the opposite of yeah. the original ideals, no? Yeah, of course, they're horrified. I mean, we, we're all, I'm horrified by that. But these ideas, you know, once you start deconstructing the culture or the worldview, it can go in a, in a very liberal or progressive direction or it can go in a very right-wing, conservative, ultra-conservative direction. There's no, there's no necessary link between a particular kind of metaphysical position and a political program. And I think that's hard for people to hear. They want to imagine that, you know, having a particular view means you have a particular politics or a particular ethics. And I don't, I don't think that always follows, actually. Um, but you know, Eslin has not been the home of any of these conspiritualities or conspiracies. I know, people. I know. It's just that I guess, as you mentioned before, um, the drive towards a sort of materialistic worldview or the departure from any sort of uh, non-materialistic uh, picture of the world, obviously, uh, yeah, fuels the engine of forms of nihilism and fundamentalism that could end in, yeah, yeah people trying to find meaning in religious fundamentalism or, or ext political extremism or, yeah, these movements. Nonetheless, it's interesting to see how there is a sort of 
renewed interest in yeah i yeah it's hard i mean at least in the u.s i can't again i can't speak of the the european scene but when someone says i'm spiritual but not religious <clears throat> usually they have no idea what they mean by that by the way and it's a kind of protest it's a kind of moral protest or placeholder because what they mean is what the what the christian churches by which they usually mean evangelical christianity what the churches are doing around gender and sexuality is really awful and is really hateful and i don't want any part of it so i'm going to disconnect myself from organized religion and I'm going to call myself spiritual. And I'm not sure what that means, but it does mean I'm against these religious forms of bigotry and hatred. And I, I kind of think that's at least where a lot of the American youth culture is. I can't speak for it, of course, but when I, I have students, I mean, these are my students. When I hear them talk like this, this is what I hear. Um, I hear a kind of moral protest. I don't hear a developed... Uh, ontological position or philosophical position. One one question. So, how do you develop your uh, position? I presume it was through the flip. But and what was your personal flip that actually allowed you to? Yeah. Have your. It, I would say it was it was a gradual process, and it had okay. a lot to do with with education and with. An intellectual quest. I started out life wanting to be a monk. Uh, I grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition and I was trained in college by some Benedictine monks who essentially taught me that thinking was not only okay, it was it was a kind of sacred duty. That, that the intellectual life was the religious life was the intellectual life. I, you know, That was deeply moving to me as a young kid from the Midwest who had never heard of Freud's unconscious or Ludwig Feuerbach or, you know, any anything or anyone. And suddenly I could use my mind. I mean, that was that was kind of revolutionary. And, you know, I end up using my mind to think my way out of Roman Catholicism, essentially. But the point is, is that I started in a religious context. And I don't know when I had the flip to answer your question. I mean, when I was trained in graduate school, we couldn't, we didn't talk about any of these things. We talked about, we could talk about mystical traditions, but usually in just philosophical or textual or historical ways. And when I started to write the book on Esalen, I started to talk to a lot of people who had had these kinds of experiences. And I, and I realized that, oh my God, they actually had these experiences and they're not lying and they're not making this up. And why don't we have any way of talking about this in the academy? What's wrong? And so that's really what got me on the path of talking about this. It wasn't, it wasn't a neutral interest. It certainly wasn't a religious experience itself. It was human beings, it was people whom I was trying to understand and I couldn't because of the tools that I was given in my training. And so I decided, well, we need better tools. And and so that's that's what I've been trying to do ever since. That was about 2005, by the way. Yeah, I'm just, 
I just, it's just a round date, you know, somewhere in there. And I just, I just got really tired and really fed up with the kind of fake answers that my own training was giving these sorts of things. Um, so that's, that's what happened. And a following up question, which is, yeah, how will you describe or how will you, how does your bullshit detector work? Like, when do you start, when do you say, you know, here is right. like, okay, here I take it as an experience, you know, like, yeah. How, right. How do right. So I have one of my favorite conversations I ever had was over dinner, actually in Big Sur. And we had drunk a lot of alcohol. And the question was, okay, where's your line? And it was essentially your question. It was, okay, when does your bullshit detector? And my answer was crop circles. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I just said that to be funny, actually, but I sort of do think that it's kind of where my detector goes wild, you know? Um, okay, here's, here, here's a better answer to your question, though. I don't study people who do this for a living or who get up on. I study people who have these experiences once in their lives and it's usually in a car accident or they get struck by lightning or they have a heart attack. It's spontaneous, it's out of the blue and they are freaking messed up by it. They are totally messed up by it because mm. it doesn't fit what they assume to be real. And so that protects me, I think, from a lot of bullshit because I just don't look at the people who maybe are probably bullshitting. Um, so I think that's a better answer to your question. The other answer is, I am sure I've been bullshitted. <laughs> I'm positive. No, come on. Um, but does it really matter at the end of the day? So I, so I heard a story or two, or I passed on a story that didn't happen. Okay, you know, we all, we all do that. That's to me. That's part of getting dirty. That's part of getting <laughs> yeah. getting in the in the mud and the in in the in the garden and really growing stuff. You got to get muddy. You can't maintain this sense of purity and have a garden. <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. It, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know. And so I, I don't know. I. I'm pretty comfortable with bullshit. And by the way, I grew up with bullshit of the literal kind. I grew up in Nebraska. I've stepped in it. I've smelled it. I know what it is. It's it's a real live metaphor for me. I It, it isn't an abstraction. I, I know actually what it feels and smells. And I haven't tasted it. I, you know, I'm not to, to continue the joke, but I, I've done almost everything else. <laughs> 